My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today, as we take another look at the life of Christ as described in the Bible, Pastor Jones plans to examine Jesus Christ's willingness and ability to walk away from unnecessary conflict. That's not to say Jesus was non-confrontational. In fact, he often angered people with his words and his actions to the point that some wanted to kill him. However, it's wrong to picture Jesus as a revolutionary looking for a fight. Christ came to save sinners and to bring God's mercy to sinful people. Thus, Jesus showed restraint and gave mercy not only to the sinful, downtrodden outcast, but also to the proud, hypocritical religious leader. I pray you'll listen, and I think you'll find this study both interesting and challenging as we consider times in Christ's ministry when our Lord walked away rather than to escalate a conflict. Hi, this is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church. Um, I'm going to be talking today out of Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21 on the subject of when Jesus walks away. There are times in the Gospels that clearly Christ walked away from conflict rather than to engage it. It was rather interesting. The first time I delivered this message was on June the 6th of last year. And uh, those of you that love history, especially American history, would recognize June the 6th as the 77th anniversary uh, back in 2021 of D-Day, one of the most crucial days in the storied history of the U.S. defeat of Germany uh, during World War II. According to History.com, the 150,000 troops who crossed the English Channel for Normandy, uh, which is in France, they formed the largest amphibious invasion in the history of warfare. Again, according to the History website, the Allied forces lost 4,414 soldiers in the first 24 hours of the invasion. Uh, 2,501 of them were American. Uh, So we lost uh, most of the soldiers on that day, Um, especially in the uh, costly but successful effort to take Omaha Beach. At the end of the day, all five of the beaches of Normandy were in Allied hands. D-Day marked the beginning of the Allied nations, primarily the United States, Great Britain, and Canada, Uh, their invasion of Europe to free the nations of Europe from Nazi Germany and ultimately to invade Germany itself to crush the Nazi war machine. Uh, Hitler and his other leaders, interestingly enough, um, uh, they they thought that the invasion was going to happen elsewhere. The, The Allies had made quite the effort to try to convince the Nazis of that, and I don't know how many of Hitler's generals bought into it, but Hitler himself did. And so um, even after our initial invasion, Hitler was expecting an, uh, an invasion from another area where they were just honestly uh, uh, dummies of planes uh, that they had made inflatable things to try to throw the Nazis off. And, and it was at least somewhat successful. Uh, what's also interesting about that invasion was that uh, it was supposed to happen the day before, June the 5th, but the, there was tremendous storms that day. So they canceled, and and the 6th was really not that much better. Uh, But it was decided that uh, actually that might work in in the favor of the Allies, coming across at a time when that was not expected. And so they did. They invaded in in some very um, rough seas. matter of fact, there were were many soldiers that were lost um, uh, in the waters, not able even to get to land. 
rather interesting that and it's tragic that Hitler and and many of his leaders around him um, said had such a utter commitment to evil and the complete rejection of God-given rules of morality that there was just no way that the Nazis were going to be stopped by negotiations or ceasefires. Uh, they had to be utterly defeated. And our, thankfully, um, uh, by the time we got into the war, um, our major generals uh, who were uh, leading the conflict understood that reality. And today it is good to remember, um, even though now we're about um, six months away from, um, from June the 6th, uh, it's good to remember the great sacrifice that so many soldiers and the families that they left behind uh, made 77 years ago uh, in, Ju- uh, in June um, in the uh, literally fighting to preserve the blessings of freedom across the world. What I find interesting that I was preaching it on June the 6th is that, again, this is a, this is a account of Jesus walking away from conflict. And, um, and so we have to come to this reality, though it is noble, to stand and fight for a righteous cause. And there are times when you have no other choice. And that was, I believe, World War II. For the furtherance of the gospel, there are many times that Christ shows us the example of walking away from a fight that he did not have to fight at that moment. And so that is our subject for today. And before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we need, obviously, balance here. There is, There are times when... Uh, as you've said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Uh, the people of the Ukraine um, have had a war thrust upon them. They have no choice but to fight for their country or surrender their lives, their their livelihoods, their families to the invading force. And we're grateful for those that are, are fighting for their freedom. But we also know and we're blessed by this that there are times when we can walk away from a conflict when it is not necessary to fight it, and so we pray that as our we look at our Savior's example here, that we'll even think of maybe some of our personal relationships, where it, where we need to exercise more self-control, and where we need to learn from what Christ did here, and so we ask for your guidance as we study your Word and our and the methods that our Savior um, uh, applied in His life. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Jesus um, had a habit of avoiding conflict when possible. It's not that he was at all um, cowardly, not by any stretch. He would walk into Jerusalem knowing he was going to be crucified. This is not a, uh, a man, and he was man as well as God. This is not a man who was cowardly in any way. But there were times when Jesus would avoid conflict when it was possible. And let me give you the beginning of an example of this. This is, again, Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to look at verse um, uh, 14 and then into verse 15 to get us started. And it, it says that, um, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So they're literally thinking uh, and trying to figure out how they can get Jesus killed. Uh, and these are religious leaders. Uh, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Now, that's an interesting statement, is it not? And this is not the only time you find this. What, what, what I want you to think about, first of all, is what Jesus did and then also what he did not do. And I think this can really help us in some of our personal relationships, whether it be um, um, you know, arguments with, with loved ones, maybe even over the gospel and, and, and uh, whether God exists or, or, or your Christian faith. Uh, how do you handle those kind of conflicts? 
Well, first of all, we see that he left an area where people were plotting to kill him. And uh, uh, I, there's nothing wrong with that. There are many people right now in the, in the Ukraine who, uh, women and children particularly, who are leaving that area in order to um, get their families, get the get especially the, the little ones and, and the wives out of the way of danger. And uh, there were times when Christ did this. And, and we have right in front of us an example of that. Uh, Jesus also would stay out of an area uh, where uh, dangerous people were, where you know you might run into dangerous people. Um, and in John chapter 7, we see an example of this um, with Christ and going up to Jerusalem where he was actually going to go, but he did it in a wise way. It says in John chapter 7, verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And so it's interesting, he, there was a feast coming up, uh, and, the, and the Jewish men were supposed to be in Jerusalem for the feasts, different feasts, uh, three times a year. And Jesus was going to go to this feast. Um, so he was not going to run away from being there. Matter of fact, he was going to preach openly at this feast. But he was going to do it in such a way that he did not take unnecessary risks while doing it. We as Christians do not are not obligated to be foolish um, in in risking our lives when uh, when we could possibly go about something a different way. So he stayed out of Judea at times. Isn't that interesting? He stayed out of this area where dangerous people were. Now in John chapter 11, we see something similar where he's walking away from the masses of people in public. And again, the reason why is because there are threats upon his life. This is John chapter 11, verse 54. It says, um, oh, let me back up to verse 53. You'll get the idea. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now, again, they've thought about this before. Matthew records that. But this is now the high priest himself that's beginning to get in on these, these discussions of how to eliminate Jesus of Nazareth. And the crime he committed in this case was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that miracle was, again, so sparking interest in the possibility that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jewish leadership is saying, we've got to put this guy to death. And so what's Jesus' response to this? Again, he can get the vibes that this is happening. Therefore, Jesus walked uh, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went um, from there into con uh, the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So we see another example of this. Jesus uh, makes this change after he raises Lazarus from the dead, and there are, again, renewed threats upon his life. Now, what I also find interesting, another thing that Jesus did, is he really avoided unnecessary attention. He really wasn't um, about self-promotion merely for the, the fact of getting a larger crowd or anything like that. He was consistently telling people who he was, that he's the Messiah, the promised Savior, that he's the Son of God. He was cl clearly doing that from the beginning of his ministry, but he's not out there, you know, um, uh, with handbills, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, vote for me, and or, or, you know, follow my army, join my army. He wasn't doing that kind of thing. So listen to this in John chapter 4. I'm reading the first three verses. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and John the Baptist had a very powerful ministry, now Jesus' ministry is, is surpassing John's, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. 
So again, as his name is spreading out and, and more people are talking about him, he's not really interested in getting a bunch of, of kind of, um, especially military followers. He's, he's interested in giving out the gospel and helping people. And the gospel was repent and believe. That's really what it was. So now, same idea, chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. Listen to verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn himself, a multitude being in that place. So here's a guy that Jesus healed, and Jesus didn't even identify himself to him. He just helped him and walked away. Now, he did go after him later in order to try to actually reach his soul. He said, you know, you've been healed. Now you need to repent lest something worse. He's talking about eternity, standing before God, ending up in hell. He says, lest the worst thing happen to you. And, and the tragedy is that guy turned around and and betrayed the Lord to the uh, Jewish leaders around him, not like uh, quite to the level of Judas, but he certainly told them who he was and got Jesus in trouble for trying to reach out to this guy and say, look, there's a physical healing that you've received. You need to be you need to be saved. Now, back in, in John chapter 7, if you remember in verse 1, I told you how there was that feast and Jesus was, was not going to just go up like uh, um, uh, because people were planning to kill him. So what did he do in that situation? I'm back in John 7. Listen to verse 2, and I'm reading down to verse 10. It says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his disciples are giving a very worldly-minded advice, and it's simply this. If you're really the Messiah and you need followers, obviously, then you've got to kind of show off. Show people what you can do. So go down there to the feast and, and, and make a show. Now, it, it, it explains in verse 5 that these fellows, at this point, Jesus' own half-brothers didn't believe in him. It says in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And I can get that. It's kind of hard to accept that your oldest brother is the son of God. That'd be a hard one. Well, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. It's really interesting Jesus is drawing a clear distinction between him and his brothers. And why is he doing that? It's not out of pride. It's out of showing them, look, fellas, you're not on the right page yet. Why does he say your time is always ready? Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that the work that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. And so his unbelieving brothers go up, and I'm sure the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were expecting Jesus to be among his brothers, and then were looking to see how they might arrest him and again put him to death. But when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So you see him again, avoiding unnecessary attention. Something else that Jesus did. He not only left an area when people were plotting to kill him, he not only stayed out of an area where, where dangerous people were, and he also avoids unnecessary attention, but he at times hid and peacefully slipped away from people who were trying to kill him. And there's two examples of this. In Acts, excuse me, in Luke chapter 4 and uh, verse 28 to 30, Jesus is preaching his first recorded sermon. Now, he's preached before. 
But this is the first sermon that was actually recorded in the scripture. It's found in Luke chapter 4. It starts, oh, around verse um, uh, 18, where Jesus uh, starts to uh, preach. But when you get down to verse 28, and by the way, this is a sermon Jesus delivered in his hometown. The, the, the audience has gotten so angry with what Jesus was saying that they want to kill him. You say, well, what was so bad that he was telling them? He was saying that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or, you're, or a Gentile, that God is looking to save sinners by faith. And that is, a, that is uh, telling them that they are sinners and they need to be saved by faith. And he pointed out two examples of Gentiles that, that God blessed and God used over the Jewish people who weren't believers at, at that time. And boy, Jesus giving that example in a synagogue just enraged those people. And so I'm coming down in Luke chapter 4 to verse 28. It says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And, and even to this day, where this ancient city of Nazareth sits, you can see this, uh, this cliff near the city. Now, it's interesting what happens at this point. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So again, God intervenes at this point. Nope, you're not killing my son yet. He's got more to do on this earth. And so Jesus just peacefully slipped away from these people. Now, something similar happens in John chapter 8. Jesus, in this case, is not Nazareth. He's preaching in the temple. And there's quite a discussion that broke out between him and his enemies. And, uh, and in verse 58 and 59, says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And again, Jesus is making a statement that he is, in fact, God. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And so here we see our Lord again um, avoiding conflict uh, and, and hiding himself and passing by. Uh, so uh, now in chapter 10, something very similar takes place. There's another discussion going on with Jesus and um, his, his enemies. In my church, I'm trying to think, I think it was this last week I dealt with this passage. But in John chapter 10, I'm coming to verse 28. Jesus speaking, he says, And I give unto them, he's talking about his followers, eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Again, another statement of his equality with God. And, they, and his um, enemies didn't miss it. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And by the way, if Jesus isn't God, they're right. It was blasphemy. Under the Jewish law, blasphemy could be punishable by death. And so they're correct. If Jesus is just making himself God, and he's not God, then it is blasphemy. But Jesus points out uh, uh, something in their law. I want to skip down, though, to verse 37. He says this, If I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, 
Though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is pointing to what he's been doing. Think about it. All over the land, there were lepers who had been cleansed. There were blind people who could now see, lame people who were walking, and even bigger than those type of miracles. There were prostitutes who were now clean and walking with God and 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 godly women. There were uh, cheats like Zacchaeus who worked as a as a as a tax collector and was ripping people off. And he said at his conversion, Lord, if I've stolen from somebody and you know he had, I'm gonna pay back four times. Can you imagine the testimony that's going through that community as Zacchaeus is going around and paying people back four times what he stole from them? These things would be astounding. Demon-possessed people that are now thinking clearly and actually able to go back to their homes and live among their families and friends again. Look, Jesus' works were testifying that he really is God. But what did the, what was the reaction? Instead of looking at his works, and, 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 and like, by the way, some of them did. Some of them actually said, how can a man that is... Uh, uh, how can a man be of the devil and open the eyes of the blind? That was uh, one of the, some of the religious leaders were saying that in John chapter 10 and verse 21. But now Jesus is trying to reason with these people in in the temple, and he's saying, "Look, look at my works. They testify. Even if you don't want to believe me, you have to you have to believe the works." Here was their reaction. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So, what did Jesus do? when he was confronted with danger. Well, he, he left an area where people were plotting to kill him. He stayed out of areas where dangerous people were who were looking to do him harm. He avoided unnecessary attention. And he hid and peaceably slipped away from people on at least three occasions that I've um, given you. But let's also think about what Jesus did not do. Well, one of the things, and, and again, this is different. This is why it was so appropriate for me to preach this originally on the anniversary of, of the D-Day invasion. Um, because when, when you're talking about gospel ministry and living as a Christian in your community, that's a whole lot, that's, that's just completely different than, than being a police officer, let's say. And there are times when, as a police officer, you have to do violence because you've got to stop someone from from murdering somebody, uh, from robbing somebody. And so you have to many times resort to force. When, again, those soldiers are coming on shore on D-Day, it's not that they wanted to be there. I'm sure that the vast majority of them did not want to be there. But they realized that this was a fight that they had to fight. But what about those that we don't have to? And what about times when we're when we're really trying to share our testimony maybe with a person and and they're getting very upset about that and they don't want to believe in God and they don't want to believe don't want to hear what we have to say. Well, some of the things that Jesus did not do is he didn't keep agitating people. That's why many times he did walk away. And I think there's something else that he didn't do that if you think about it, he didn't stand and fight them unnecessarily. He didn't do violence when it wasn't necessary. Now, again, they weren't trying to kill somebody else. They were trying to kill him. And so instead, he walked, he, he got away. He, sometimes he hid. Sometimes he, he just slipped through the crowd. But he didn't. All the way through his earthly ministry as a 
uh, one that is sharing the good news of salvation. He wasn't coming to punish. He was coming to save. And he will even tell his disciples that. And so he doesn't come um, to judge and to destroy. There's an interesting situation that happens in Luke chapter 9. And uh, it's in verses 51 to 54. Uh, Jesus was starting on his on the road to Jerusalem, and eventually he's going to be crucified. It's going to take some time, but that's where he's uh, eventually headed. And it says in Luke chapter 9, I'm in verse 51 now. Uh, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. When it's talking about being received up, it's talking about he's going to die on the cross, he's going to be buried, he's going to rise from the dead and ascend back to heaven. That's what it's talking about. It came time for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This again shows us that Jesus is no coward. He's walking into the place where he will be tortured to death. That's where he's headed eventually here. And, and sent messengers before his face. So as he's going to different towns, he's gonna, it's going to take him weeks, I, I, maybe even months, before he gets to Jerusalem uh, for the final time when he's going to be crucified. But that's where he's, in his mind and heart, that's where he's headed. And so as he's traveling, he would sometimes send some of his followers ahead of him to a different town, and they'd say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. And, of course, that would enable those who wanted to be healed to try to gather. It also would enable people to come together if they wanted to listen to him preach. Because, again, his days are getting few when he's going to be able to do this. So in, in verse 52, he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a, city, a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now, Jesus had been well-received earlier in his ministry in the Samaritan villages, specifically the one, of, uh, one called Sychar. It was outside that village that he met a woman. And this story, by the way, is told in John chapter 4. Uh, he met a woman. We call her today the woman at the well. And she's coming to this well at, at, at the middle part of the day, which is very unusual. In all probability, she's doing that because she doesn't have a lot of friends in the town and uh, we learn from her life story probably why that's the case. She has been married five times, and she's living with man number six. And so who knows how many women that she uh, stole their husbands from. And, and so she's not a very popular woman. She's coming at an unusual time. But who is there at the well when she gets there but a Jewish man? And again, the Samaritans and Jews do not get along. Uh, I think she fully intended to get the well, the water, um, and get out of there. And instead, the Jewish man, who is Jesus, not only speaks to her, but asks her for a drink of water, which I'm just telling you, that wouldn't happen. Not only for a Jewish man to speak to a Samaritan woman in public, but number two, to ask for a drink at her hand. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And, of course, that led to a conversation where he identifies himself to her as Messiah. And she went back to her village and said, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done. That's what he basically he told, told her about the marriages she'd had and the, um, and the fact that she was living with man number six. And she says, could this be the Messiah? This, this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? And so the village goes out. They not only welcomed Jesus, he spent a couple days with these people, with, with them and his disciples. Again, breaking a lot of the kosher laws um, that the Jews would have been following to reach these people. He had been well received in this Samaritan village. And so as he's coming back 
And later in his ministry, he's headed through uh, Samaria again. Some of his disciples go before him, and they say, Hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. Would you like to hear him? Something along that line. Verse 53. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans on this occasion say, No way. You're he- he's heading to Jerusalem? No way. No way. He can't, can't stop here. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? That's an interesting request, isn't it? They said, Lord, these guys have rejected you. They've, they've, they've been hostile to you. So do you think we should just call down fire and, and, and destroy them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Again, Jesus walking away. He doesn't judge and destroy these people. Now, um, that was honestly confusing. And it was confusing to none other than John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was the guy that identified Jesus as the Messiah. And he had made some predictions. Um, And um, it's rather interesting uh, that these predictions were were important. And they were things that that were prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. And yet, here Jesus does not seem to be doing them. He doesn't seem to be fulfilling the prophecies of great judgment upon the unbelievers. Let me give you one more example of Jesus not not stepping in to judge and destroy. This is out of Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is being arrested. And you remember it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, those of you that, that, that know your Bible fairly well. You know that he was betrayed by Judas there to a, a whole band of soldiers that had come and um, had come for to arrest him. And so I'm picking up the story at uh, at Matthew 26 verse 49. But Jesus said to him, but uh, immediately he went up. This is uh, Judas. Judas went up to Jesus and said, "Greetings, Rabbi," and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, "Friend, why have you come?" Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And those of you that know this account would would remember that was Peter. The other Gospels identify uh, this person as Peter who tries to defend the Lord. He's got a a sword and, and he takes it out and he's not very good with it. He's a fisherman. And he swings hacking at some somebody who's in the area there and and gets the guy's ear um and uh verse 52 says and jesus said to him said this is peter put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword or do you think that i cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must happen So what is Jesus saying? Hey, I could. I could step in to judge and destroy right now. I could. But that's not God's plan. So we see Jesus not agitating when people are getting more and more upset. He would tell them the truth. But then he would back off. And he'd go somewhere else. He doesn't stand and fight. 
He doesn't call the angels in to destroy the Samaritans when they reject him. He doesn't call the angels in to destroy, or even himself, to destroy this band that's going to arrest him, that's going to be involved in, in, in turning him over for torture and for, and for a horrific death. He doesn't come to destroy. Rather interesting, is it not? In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23 uh, is a following statement by Christ because he taught his disciples this. Um, and by the way, I believe this is actually going to be fulfilled in a time beyond us when the uh, kingdom of God is going to be established, when blood is going to have to be shed. And I'll talk about that in a short period of time. But John, Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus says this to his followers who are going to go out and proclaim the kingdom. He says, when they pursue you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, this is a different time period. But it's interesting what he's saying. He's saying, don't stand and fight. Don't keep agitating. If people aren't going to listen, go somewhere else where they will. Now, that brings us to what I started to mention uh, a few moments ago. And that is that there are these prophecies of Jesus that don't always seem to fit. And let me take you to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And in chapter 3, there's a prophecy of Jesus' forerunner. That would be John the Baptist. And what uh, uh, would be proclaimed also about the Messiah. Again, it's Malachi chapter 3, and I'm starting at verse 1. It says this, Behold my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was going to be the messenger of Jesus Christ who would prepare the way before him. But it's interesting what comes next. And the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you think, in Jesus' public ministry, did he suddenly come to the temple? And the answer, again, would be yes. Now, he'd been there many, many times before, but if you remember, he came into the temple early in his ministry. By the way, it seems that he did it late in his ministry as well. And he sees all the commercialization going on, all of the, 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 the uh, money being made and the confusion being made in the temple in the name of God. And it so angered him. If you remember, he took a whip. And he drove out the money changers. He drove out those that were selling the animals. And, and he uh, let, let the uh, doves go. He drove out the animals. What's he doing? He's, and he says to them, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. Now that's the kind of thing that John the Baptist would be looking for. But here's the problem. Listen to verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2, but I'm in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And that's true. That's what Jesus was doing. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. What, what is being prophesied is that Jesus would straighten out the priests and the Levites. Now, he certainly um, is calling them to that, but the reality is it that they, they did not respond to it. They didn't turn. And Jesus does not call down fire from heaven on them. He doesn't destroy them. 
He doesn't take them out. Now, in Malachi chapter 4, same book, here's another prophecy about the Messiah. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stub, will be stubble, and the day which is coming upon them, uh, is coming, shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, uh, that will leave them neither root or branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow like fat stall-fed fat, uh, stall calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be as be ashes under the soles of your feet on the, the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you can see from these prophecies that it really appears like this when Messiah comes, and you can understand this would be confusing then, to the the uh, the Jewish people, when Messiah comes, he's supposed to straighten out the evils. Matter of fact, that's what John the Baptist was proclaiming about Jesus. Listen to his message. Now I'm skipping one book forward to Matthew. We're we're fast forwarding 400 years in time to get there. We're now the first book of the New Testament. John the Baptist is on the scene, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, here's what he says about the the coming Christ. He hasn't met him yet. He says, uh, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John is predicting that Jesus, when he comes on the scene, is going to deal with those who are rebellious and going to deal with them in judgment. Now that brings us then to Matthew chapter 11, because it says this in verse 2, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, you see, John the Baptist, um, shortly after he introduces Jesus as the promised Messiah and, and baptizes him, shortly after that, he's arrested by Herod and held until his execution. And so John at this point is in prison and I'll read again that it says when he had heard in prison about the works of Christ. So he's hearing what Jesus is doing. And yes, Jesus is doing wonderful things, but he's not doing certain things. Like he, when he goes in and cleanses the temple, the worship goes back to the way it was. He doesn't destroy the people who are doing evil. And, and there's, there's examples of this. Again, Jesus is not calling down fire from heaven on people. He's not destroying the rebellious. So it's interesting that he, G, John hears about the works of Christ. For, uh, I'm, I'm still in verse 2. It says, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? John at this point is doubting, well, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah because he's, he just doesn't seem to be doing what I thought he was going to do. Jesus answered and said to them, these are the messengers that came from John, because John's in prison, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What's he saying? John, don't be offended because I'm not doing it the way you expected. And can I tell you this? 
that's the way God often works in our lives too. And that is we really are not anticipating what he does. And he tells us in Isaiah chapter 55 and uh, verse 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which means this. God tells us, you can't figure out my mind. There is no way. Now, we can bank on that what God says is true. We just can't figure out how he's going to get to it, when he's going to get to it. And sometimes we don't even understand properly what he's saying. Now, I will tell you that the prophecies that are found in Malachi about Jesus judging and and dealing with his enemies are going to be proved true. But that's coming at his second coming when he truly will establish the kingdom. His first camp coming, he, he tells us he came to seek and to save the lost. And that's why some of you may be wondering, why am I still alive? I've done so many things against God. Well, here's what Jesus said to a man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 17. It's right after the most famous verse probably in the Bible, John 3, 16. Here's verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to condemn you. I'm coming to save you. But again, you have to turn to him. Now, let me read about when the Messiah will come. This is out of Revelation chapter 19. And when he will deal with those who are still in rebellion against him. I'm in Revelation 19 at verse 11 says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in, with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He, he, he uh, himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had his, on, uh, on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're saying, when is Jesus going to deal in this kind of anger with people? And it's when he returns at the end of the tribulation. Let me tell you what's going on at that time. There is an evil uh, world government that is putting to death the children of God, trying to round them up as if they were subhuman, and murdering them, tormenting them, doing all kinds of evil against them. And God, throughout the tribulation period, is bringing judgments that, yes, are are to... Um, uh, yes, they're, they're dealing with sinful man, but he's also trying to wake up anybody who will listen. And at the end of the tribulation period, people have made up their mind, um, who are lost, they've made up their mind, I am not, no matter what happens, I am not going to turn to God. And that's the people that Jesus steps in and deals with, the people who have been brutally murdering and, and oppressing people throughout this planet. Now, let me show you another prophecy of Jesus. So there's this prophecy, yes, that he will come and that he will deal in wrath and anger, but I'm thankful that's not why he came the first time. He came to deal with a greater enemy than even man himself, and that is our sin. He came to pay for our sin because nobody goes to heaven without the cross. And that's why you can't dodge the cross, my friend, and get to heaven. You can't. You can't say, well, I'm going to be good enough. You can't be. 
in Isaiah chapter 42, now Isaiah is written, uh, the, when I was reading in Malachi, that's written about 400 years before Christ. Isaiah is written about 700 years before Christ. And listen to what he says about Messiah. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Will bring, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. You remember I told you he's not about self-glorification, um, about, about you know promoting himself. Exactly what he's talking about here. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He's going to be gentle. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. When he was talking about the Gentiles hearing, that's the nations of the world. The gospel going to the nations of the world. The coastlands, that's the people the farthest away. They're waiting. They're waiting to hear about this one who can come to save them. And people still need to hear across this planet. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, the spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you, speaking of the Messiah, in righteousness, will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, that would be the nation of Israel, as a light to the Gentiles, that's the people of the world, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. God is saying, I'm sending my Messiah, my Savior. He is going to uh, deliver the oppressed. I'm skipping down the same chapter. I come to verse 22, and it says this. I'm in Isaiah 44, verse, uh, 42, verse 22 now. And this, But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them uh, are snared in holes. They are hidden in prison houses. They are for a prey, and no one delivers. For plunder, and no one says restore. Who among you will hear this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. What's he saying is this, the suffering of the nation of Israel was due to its rebellion against their God. Therefore, he has poured out his anger, uh, poured on him the fury of his anger, the strength of battle, and has set him on fire all around. Yet he did not know, and it burned him, Yet he did not take it to heart. And so God was saying that, that the Messiah has come to deliver the, the oppressed, but he's also going to judge the wicked. So which way would you rather meet the Lord? Would you rather meet him in his judgment or in his mercy? Which way would you rather that your loved ones and your friends meet the Lord? In his judgment when he has to deal in anger with sin or in his mercy? Because he's come right now to offer mercy. So what did Jesus do? We, we just started in Matthew chapter 12, and, and it's not going to take us long to see what Jesus did in this particular conflict when they're plotting to kill him in Matthew chapter 12, and we're starting again at verse uh, 15. Uh, well, let me back up again and get verse 14, just so, again, you'll remember kind of where, we, where we've been. Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And I'm going to stop there for just a second, and I want you to think about what Christ is doing instead of being involved in this conflict. He's helping other people who will listen. 
He went somewhere else. You know, it's kind of interesting. We have uh, uh, missionaries, in, and I get this. I appreciate their compassion for people who have never heard across the world. But there's a reason why the gospel has gone so uh, uh, greatly across the English-speaking world, United States, Great Britain, Canada. Uh, uh, unfortunately, right now, we've been rejecting our Christian heritage, and it's to our peril. But I will tell you that the gospel went uh, very uh, greatly across uh, Great Britain, across the, the uh, United States, across Canada. And you know why it went across these, these areas so well? Because people listened. And, when, and God will send the light to people who will listen. So Jesus is being threatened. People are plotting to kill him in one area. What does he do? He moves on. He finds some others who will listen. And he begins to help them, to heal them, to change them. And, and then he, the, uh, prophet, the Matthew goes on, he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. He's quoting now that passage in Isaiah that we just read. My, whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world. Why? He'll go out and he'll send the gospel where people will listen. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench, he'll be gentle, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles, the nations of the world, will trust. What did Jesus do? He left those who wouldn't listen, and he gave us an example of going to those who would. Not promoting himself, but talking to people who would listen. What do we conclude from this? Well, number one is that Jesus could have easily destroyed his enemies. But he instead chose to do his enemies no harm. Uh, he came with a message of mercy. But he will return one day to judge his enemies. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that one, my friend. You do not. So you must choose whether you will meet Jesus as your Savior or as your judge. And let me take you to a spot in closing in Psalm 50. And I'm, uh, if you can find it, Psalms, uh, the Psalms are in the middle of your Bible. Um, and Psalm 50, I'm going to pick up at verse 16 and read to the end of the Psalm. It says this. Let me back up to verse 15, as a matter of fact, if you're, if you're still turning. Because God says this to, to us. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. What an invitation. Okay, you're in trouble. Things are going wrong in your life. What is God saying? Call upon me. Ask me for your help, for, for my help. He says, I'll deliver you, and you need to then glorify me. Then give praise to me for what I've done for you. Don't just think it was luck. If, if, if God steps in and helps you, then give him praise. Okay, But to the wicked, verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or to take my covenant in your mouth? Unfortunately, there are many wicked people, I know that many of you know this, who go to church every Sunday, who act very religious, who, who go through the motions. And God is saying to them, what right do you have to act like you're a believer in me? That's what he's saying. You're taking my statutes, you're declaring them, you're taking my covenant in your mouth. Verse 17, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. Some of these people are, are teaching in the church. They're, they're, the, they're the teacher. He's saying, but in, in real life, when you get outside of the, of the church, you're living like the devil. When you saw a thief, you consented with him 
and have been a partaker with adulterers. So let me ask you, even by the, the entertainment you watch or the relationships that you have, you say, well, I love God. Well, do you? Are you involved in an immoral relationship that you know God would not approve of? Are you acting like, oh, yeah, I love God, and you're taking his words into your mouth, but at the same time, you're consenting with people maybe who are, who are stealing. People maybe uh, you're cheating on your taxes or you're, you're helping somebody or you're stealing from work. Maybe, again, you're involved in a moral relationship. He goes on. He says, you give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. Are you lying about people? You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And some of you may be involved in that. And that is you've had a bad uh, relationship with your, with your own brother, sister, and you're slandering them to other people. These things you have done, this is God speaking, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Isn't that interesting? God is saying, look, I didn't step in and zap you when you lied about your brother or sister. I didn't step in. And, and bring fire down from heaven when you, when you stole your neighbor's wife. I didn't do it. So then you assumed that I'm, like, I'm just like a, a human being. Maybe I missed it. But he says, I'm going to judge you one day. I'm going to set it all before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. God is saying, look, I'm giving you a chance. I do not want to have to meet you as your judge. I would rather meet you as your savior. That choice, my friend, is up to you. So you need to appreciate God's call of mercy here. And I'd, I'd beg you to run to God's mercy and also extend that same mercy to people around you. And remember this verse, Romans 12 and verse 18. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some extra spiritual help like counseling, prayer, or some help with questions from the Bible, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For me, me, he died, for me, he lives, and everlasting life and light, he frees.